It wouldn't be the Christmas holiday in the Western world without the magical sounds of the Nutcracker, composed by the great Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky and centering around Clara, a young girl who falls in love with the Nutcracker Prince and conjures an epic battle against a mouse king with seven heads. This episode of One Symphony will travel into the fantastical worlds of Tchaikovsky, writer and musician E.T.A. Hoffman, and choreographer Marius Petipa as we bring this marvelous ballet to life. Don't worry, there will be plenty of holiday sweets to keep you focused. Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. The Nutcracker was Tchaikovsky's third ballet after Swan Lake and Sleeping Beauty, and one of the last works of his life. According to the composer's brother, he was very little pleased by the subject of the Nutcracker. Wherefore cometh this subject matter? Look no further than Ernst Theodor Amadeus Hoffmann. Yes, Hoffmann added the Amadeus in his name because of his love for Mozart. Hoffmann was a musician, writer, and judge. He even had been known to dabble in composition. Which of Mozart's works does this remind you of? Most importantly, Hoffmann wanted to revolutionize the fairy tale genre. He thought that the bourgeois household of the 19th century could use a little more creativity and imagination to inspire its children. With these goals in mind, in 1816, E.T.A. Hoffmann created Der Nussknacker und der Mausekönig, The Nutcracker and the Mouse King. When Tchaikovsky got a hold of the story, it was actually based on a somewhat revised version of the story by Alexandre Dumas, irrespective of Tchaikovsky's eminence as single-handedly transforming the ballet genre, and in doing so, paving the way for the great ballets of Stravinsky, Ravel, and Defaya. The choreographer Marius Petipa took a micromanagerial approach to the collaboration. He was constantly badgering Tchaikovsky with notes like, the stage is empty, Clara returns, after the chimes of a clock, a short tremolo, then five measures of scratching mice and four measures for their whistling, then eight measures of accelerating music ending in a chord. Come on, do you know who you're working with here, Monsieur Petipa? So what was the dramatic action for which Piotr Ilyich had to write music? After a light overture where only half of the orchestra is playing, see if you can spot who's missing, were thrown immediately into a Christmas party at the family of Judge Silberhaus from Dumas' telling, or it would be medical officer Stahlbaum in the original Hoffmann. The guests arrive and together decorate the tree.
As the clock strikes nine, it's time to call the children. children have settled down, the judge orders that a march be played, that you will know all too well. Tchaikovsky's instruction, tempo of a lively march, please. To illustrate the central importance of the children in the drama, Tchaikovsky gives them yet more music, this time a gallop. Now it's time for the parents to enter, and in the same gallop, Tchaikovsky cooks up a heavy portion of steak and potatoes as the parents plod their way in. The composer even asked the orchestra to play pesante, which means heavy in Italian. Now we come to the crux of the matter, the life and soul of the party, the arrival of Godfather Drosselmeyer, or Drosselmeyer if you're going by the Dumas version. An important note here, when E.T.A. Hoffmann wrote the fairy tale, he based the Stahlbaum family on that of his good friend Julius Hitzig and his two children, Marie and Fritz. And Hoffmann certainly saw himself as the crazy and imaginative godfather who showers the kids with gifts. So we can raise a glass for Hoffmann's own persona, Drosselmeyer, who Tchaikovsky introduces with some intoxicating and philandering music. Drosselmeyer's presents include a dancing doll that jumps out of the cabbage strudel and a soldier that jumps out of the shepherd's pie. At least those nutritious dishes will balance all the sweets from Act Two. Then it's revealed, if Fritz and Clara weren't spoiled enough already, Drosselmeyer reveals a nutcracker, which the kids promptly fight over before young Fritz accidentally breaks the nutcracker's teeth on some unruly hazelnuts. Drosselmeyer does some quick dental work on the poor toy, and to save the evening, the judge promptly instructs for a Grossvatertanz to be played. This translates literally to grandfather dance, going all the way back to the 1600s and played traditionally at weddings. 
Robert Schumann would have composed the most popular version in 1831 in the finale of his Papillon, or Butterflies, which Tchaikovsky would likely have studied at the piano. Here's Schumann's version. Tchaikovsky's grand orchestral version. A funny note here, Tchaikovsky instructs ad libitum to give maximum flexibility with the dancers. See if you can guess the spot of the last fortissimo chord. guests graciously depart. All's well that ends well, or not. Now that everyone's gone, before going to sleep, Clara wants to check in on her recovering patient. Now all sorts of magic abounds in the air. And her precious toy beams with fantastical light. What's that? The clock strikes midnight. All of a sudden, Clara hears the scratching of mice. They surround her. She tries to flee, but freezes. Now there's this thing in composition called the rule of threes. You can repeat or sequence a musical phrase or sentence no more than three times in a row. This is generally followed to a T among all the foremost composers. Tchaikovsky, being a Russian composer trained as an Austro-Hungarian Italian, has never been known to play by the rules. Listen to this excerpt from his fourth symphony. Count how many times he sequences this phrase, definitely more than three.
Tchaikovsky uses the same device for, guess what? The Christmas tree, which takes on epic proportions and just keeps on growing. That's great background music next time you're decorating a tree, by the way. Now the battle begins. The sentry wakes the rabbit drummers with a gunshot. The mice and the gingerbread soldiers prepare for battle. It's not looking good. The mice triumph, devouring the gingerbread soldiers, and their general, the Mouse King, finally arrives. trick up her sleeve, or on her foot to be more precise. She throws her shoe at the Mouse King and knocks him out. Clara has saved the day, and the Nutcracker has inexplicably turned into a handsome prince to boot. Where have I heard that one before? She enters a forest of fir trees, and the gnomes honor the prince, Clara, and all the rest of the toys. This is no-holds-barred Tchaikovsky at his finest. The end. Is only the end of Act One. We've only reached the halfway point. There's still one full act to go. That's the crazy thing about this ballet. The story has been completed by the end of the first act. Clara and the newly transmogrified prince have defeated the Mouse King and his minions. So what's left? Well, many would argue that the second act is where the money's at. The enchanted palace of Confiturenburg. That is the kingdom of sweets.
in the arrival of arguably the most alluring and sugary character from all the Tchaikovsky ballets, the Sugar Plum Fairy. Announced by a cymbal crash, as is the case with many other momentous junctures in the ballet. Not the music you're familiar with? This is actually only her arrival, and she will save her celestified dance for the end of the act. Now, after a river of rose oil swells, Clara and the Prince appear. with 12 pages. And the Nutcracker recounts their story to all the delectable citizens of the Land of Sweets. He tells the story of battling an army of mice and how Clara valiantly stepped into his rescue. The sugary court celebrates Clara's service to the prince. to my favorite part of the ballet because, as I'm sure is the same for you if you're still listening, a good percentage of my teeth happen to be sweet. This is the divertissement. In the Italian and German sense, divertimento could mean anything from a keyboard work or fantasia to music that accompanies social occasions or banquet music to be served with the desserts. In a French sense, where Tchaikovsky and Petipa are implying, the divertissement is part of a stage production, normally opera, but it works in a ballet. This particularly saccharine divertissement includes everyone's favorite treats, chocolate from Spain, Coffee from Arabia. However, this particular roast is clearly decaf. Tea from China.
and a Ukrainian Cossack dance called a trepak as a tribute to the courageous efforts of the gingerbread soldiers in battle. Next, we have a fun play on words. Militon is both a pipe, hence the flutes, and a pipe-shaped pastry, hence the sweet. In La Mère Gigonne et les Polichinelles, we have Mother Gigonne, who is an old woman who lives in a shoe, or in some translations, a woman with lots of children. Here's the ruckus they make. And don't forget the clowns. It's this section that makes me think Stravinsky had to have been influenced by this orchestration, particularly the doubling of the English horn with the bass clarinet, while creating his own clown masterpiece, Petrushka. Tchaikovsky told his friends, it's awfully fun to write a march for tin soldiers and a waltz for flowers. This is coming from someone who, let's just say fun isn't always reflected in his letters. The waltz is so magnificent that it's performed as a finale to the concert version or suite from the Nutcracker when dancers aren't present. Had Johann Strauss Jr. not stolen the title, it's my humble opinion that Tchaikovsky would be crowned Waltz King of the World. He's known for waltzing his way through life. Even in his symphonies, Tchaikovsky inserts waltzes. In the Sixth Symphony, one of the few pieces written after the Nutcracker and only weeks before Tchaikovsky's death, he inserts a waltz where the second or slow movement would normally be played. This isn't any waltz. This is in 5-4. That means instead of the traditional 1-2-3-1-2-3 beat, you have to count to five. I'll leave it up to you as to how to divide that five. One, two, one, two, three, or one, two, three, one, two. Regardless of where you stand on the subdivisions, we can all certainly agree that this music has overdone it on the champagne. Tchaikovsky didn't just compose dance music. There's a very famous account of the composer and his colleague, Monsieur Camille Saint-Saëns, donning their tutus and pas de doing their way through Georg Benda's opera, Pygmalion. Or was it Jean-Philippe Rameau's version? think they would look lovely dancing to either. Back to the Waltz of the Flowers. Tchaikovsky certainly doesn't disappoint. 
the fantastic ballroom splurge certainly gives us the opportunity to burn off all those calories that we've devoured earlier in the act. Speaking of pas de deux, a friend of Tchaikovsky's wagered that he could not write a piece of music based strictly on the notes of a scale. Well, Tchaikovsky happily obliged. I can't help but sharing this connection. Right after Tchaikovsky composed The Nutcracker, he had a run-in with the soon-to-be-famous composer and conductor Gustav Mahler. Mahler described the 52-year-old composer as an elderly gentleman, very likable with elegant manners, who seems to be quite rich. Mahler utilizes this build-a-melody-out-of-a-scale approach in his Seventh Symphony. What ends up being the second variation of the pas de deux you just heard is the famous Danse de la Fée du Rager, the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. Its signature sound is defined by the celesta, which was a new invention in 1886 by the Parisian builder Auguste Moustel. The always entrepreneurial Tchaikovsky was determined to be the first composer to use the new invention, asking his brother to get me one of these instruments, but don't tell anybody. Unfortunately, French composer Ernest Chausson beat Tchaikovsky to the punch, plunking the celeste into his La Tempête in 1888. Tchaikovsky was nonetheless proud to beat his colleagues Rimsky-Korsakov and Alexander Glazunov to the punch, and would compose the quintessential music to forever memorialize the instrument to accompany the Sugar Plum Fairy's graceful dance.
Tchaikovsky returns to what he does best with a final waltz and apotheosis, where he provides a rousing romantic finale to top off the land of enchantment, inspiration, and sweetness that both E.T.A. Hoffmann and the composer have copiously created for us. Mr. Hoffman, looking to spark the imaginations of children for centuries, found the perfect bedfellow in Mr. Tchaikovsky, whose ability to bring a story to life, real or imaginary, with music will forever stimulate our imaginations and creativity during the holidays and beyond. It becomes one of the sounds, smells, and tastes of our holiday spirit and the solstice along with the season of renewal and the affirmation that life can be exactly what you create it to be. Thank you to all the incredible record labels and performers that made this episode possible. Ensembles that you heard today include the Orchestra of the Kirov Opera, the Apotheosis Orchestra, Ensemble Musica Nigella, the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra, the Simon Bolivar Symphony Orchestra of Venezuela, the Oslo Philharmonic, and the Vienna Philharmonic. Conductors include Valerie Gergiev, Corneil Bernalet, Takanori Nemoto, Jan Kustier, Gustavo Dudamel, and Maris Janssens. Soloists included singers Eleonore Pancrazzi, Rita Streich, Malita Musili, Raymond Grumbach, and pianist Philippe Bianconi. Record labels where you can find all this wonderful music include Philips, Apotheosis, Clarta, La Dolce Volta, Classical Moments, Deutsche Grammophon, Shandos, and Decca. Thank you for joining us. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music. <laughs>